Let's begin uh, in 2 Kings chapter 8. We want to look at uh, Jehu, who is going to be God's instrument of judgment upon a few people. He's an interesting character. This is the best way to describe him. 2 Kings chapter 8. And I think what we'll do is read chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Let's stand. Uh, We'll refer to chapter 8, where we left off last week, and then um, spend most of our time in chapter 9. But uh, what's happened here is that Elisha sent one of his uh, prophets to uh, go anoint Jehu in private. course, there were a lot of his friends around when he did this, and so when he came back out of the room, they asked Jehu what happened, because he told the prophet, as soon as you anoint him, you, you skedaddle, for whatever reason. So the, his friends wanted to know what's happened, and they and Jehu didn't want to tell him, but eventually he, he said, well, I've been anointed king. And, uh, and he was just going to leave it at that, but the friends kept prodding him. Well, they didn't really keep prodding him, they just basically said, okay, they took that as a sign, and they immediately started the revolt with the Jehu, and Jehu seemingly didn't have a problem with that. And uh, so that's kind of where we're at right here. All right, verse 14 of chapter 9, 2 Kings 9. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram, who was the king of Israel. Now Joram, was with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. Remember, he had usurped been Hadad and killed him and usurped him as king. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds from the Syria that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, uh, then let no one slip out of the city. That he's talking to his friends. If you really want to do this, let's do it right. So let no one slip out of the city, Jezreel, <clears throat> and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram while he's healing. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu and, and as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And basically he's saying, It's not your concern. Uh, If you want to support me, come around behind me. Otherwise, I think the the intimation was, uh, You you better do that if you want to live. And the watchman, uh, and Jehu said, Okay, and the watchman, in the middle of uh, verse uh, 18, reported, saying, The messenger reached him, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to him and said, Thus says the king, thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Then again the watchman reported, He reached him, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Yeah, I know some people are known for their driving, right? Uh, and I just I don't know where you fall in that. Some people I think ride their brakes; they'd be like number one on defensive driving, right? And some people never use their brakes; they'd be over here on ten on crazy. You know? So somewhere, 
he was known for, for driving crazy, you know, out of, a little out of control perhaps. And so, uh, 21, and Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu. And he met him at the property of Daboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Nehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorcerers of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow at, full, at his full length and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plat of ground, be belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, now the Lord made this pronouncement against him. So they were with Ahab when he took possession of Naboth's uh, vineyard. Uh, They were his servants and they were there at the time. They heard Elijah Elijah at that time pronounce judgment against Ahab and his family, his family line for doing that. Verse 26, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So he remembered it as it was yesterday. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen. I'm not sure, but perhaps... Someone who drives like Jehu has just entered the room. I'm not sure. We just read, John, where Jehu drove furiously. It's, it's possible that you're the closest to that in this group. I don't know. <laughs> He's a race car driver. So. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right. So in Ahaziah, verse 27, the king of Judah saw this. He fled in the direction of Beth Hagen. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Medigo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh hour, eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. So that's kind of a just, kind of out of place where letting us know when all this took place with Ahaziah. Verse 30, When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And of course, you remember Zimri is the one who murdered uh, the king uh, in this week-long revolt before someone murdered him. So she's kind of referring to him as a Zimri, as a traitor. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall on the, and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king, the king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palm of her hands. And when they came back and was told him, he said, 
This is the word of the Lord, which was spoken by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that none, no one can say, this is Jezebel. They can see it. So, quite an interesting account, as most of these are. This one being, I think, one of the more interesting ones in some ways, certainly. But, uh, a lot of death, obviously, but you gotta remember, uh, and, well, I might say death and gore in this case, but, these were very evil people. These were idolaters. Jezebel, of course, was a uh, idolater, and she also persecuted God's people to death. And uh, so, this is uh, this account, as we've really seen all through these pages, I think, we're seeing that uh, you either uh, obey the Lord or you don't, and the, the judgment is coming if you don't. And... Uh, so that's certainly that's something, something we want to look at again today. Uh, last week, we uh, saw uh, in this this idea of this, remember that man who was trampled at the gates of Samaria during the famine, and uh, again with uh, Haziel being murdered, uh, or not Haziel, but uh, Ben-Hadad murdered by Haziel uh, for his part in uh, fighting God's people. That systematically, when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And we forget almost immediately, often, but the Lord never forgets. And again, that's an extremely important lesson. Um, just, just for, just to remind us that we're by ourselves and we think we're getting away with something, but the Lord sees everything. And it's not going to get, we're not getting by with anything. Even if we're in Christ and we're not going to suffer the judgment of our sin, be sure your sins will find you out. And uh, we think that we can just uh, do what we want to do, and there's not, not going to be consequences. But this is reminding us that's not the case. And so many see the severity of God in the Old Testament negatively or ignore it entirely. We talked about that. But it is a good thing to recognize that the Lord is sovereign over men and that he is a God, as God is free to bring death and judgment on any he chooses. Uh, we, we, we can't. God has been so described as this this teddy bear God of love, and 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 deliberately any any reference to wrath is is immediately shot down and is wrong and unloving. But what we're seeing in the scriptures is what the Bible says, what, what He says about Himself. And so we should never use such passages as warnings, so that we will never face His judgment. Not as excuses for us to judge the Lord as harsh or unfair. So, again, how we approach these things to, to submit to the Lord and see them as warnings is helpful. To think that we can stand in judgment of God is only going to bring these things upon ourselves. That's <clears throat> what the lost do. And many skeptics do that today. We're also given some insight into the eternal secret counsels of God. Remember as he uh, told Haziel, uh, that you know, the king would recover, and yet it was clearly his secret will that the king was not going to recover. <clears throat> so we, we saw some insight into that, how they work, and his revealed will. And we re- remind ourselves that we are responsible for what is revealed to us and cannot use his secret will, which we have no idea what it is until it happens, as an excuse for sin. 
You cannot say that since God is sovereign and I end up, you know, I've committed adultery, that that must have been God's will. No, because God's will is that you not do that. And if he has allowed you in his secret counsels to do that, it's not, he hasn't forced you to do that. He just hasn't stopped you from doing your own will. And so there's, there, you're just as responsible. <clears throat> so we get into trouble when we think we must know and understand everything if we are to jump on board with God. That's, that's not letting God be God. And of course, Deuteronomy 29.29 of it, verse it should be underlined in your Bible, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words, excuse me, of this law. And so, we finished in chapter 8, and this uh, was, a, remember I referenced the fact that these two wicked kings, the first two real wicked kings of Judah, back to back, and during that time, uh, Edom revolted and never was under Israel's rule anymore, and you just see things starting to go downward. The Lord puts a puts a stop to it to some degree, but with without but with few exceptions, uh, the kings start to become worse and worse, more and more liberal. Uh, in, in some cases, just completely wicked, and we'll see this moving forward. So this is <clears throat> things start to deteriorate, and of course, this is certainly the saddest part of of the, the Old Testament, as far as I'm concerned, historically. Anyway, so um, the latter, starting in verse 25, though, with the reign of Ahaziah, the thing to remember, too, both of these men, Jehoram and Ahaziah, and sometimes he's called Jehoram, sometimes Jehoram, is that uh, they are uh, descendants of Ahab, excuse me, they married into Ahab's family, they married his daughters, married his granddaughter, and if you read the account of First Chronicles, it draws a clear connection between marrying these wicked women and their going into idolatry themselves. So just that obvious lesson that uh, it is completely against the will of God that Christians should get involved with unsaved people, especially in marriage, and that those kind of uh, uh, relationships, it, it will do you no good. And... Uh, just because perhaps at some point you, you know somebody who married an unsaved person and they end up getting saved, oh, it's all well and good. That, that doesn't justify the means, doesn't justify the end, right? Uh, you, it isn't, they had to disobey the Lord to do it. And so, uh, we, <clears throat> again, those things should be clear to us. But what this does is set up the end uh, of this a prediction from Elijah, not so much a prediction, but the word of God that, that Ahab's family's line was going to come to an end, and this is setting all that up. Um, and so uh, it, it tells us the latter part um, in verse 29, the king Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of his wounds when he's fighting the Syrians, and he fought against when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, King of Judah went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. And so that sets up chapter 9. This is why you find the king of Judah in Jezreel visiting Joram because, again, they, these were wicked men. They had a good relationship. And, of course, he no doubt he learned from his father, Jehoshaphat, remember, who had a hard time separating himself from 
Ahab. Uh, and so he's visiting. And so they're together. And this is why they're both going to die uh, by the hand of Jehu in chapter 9. <clears throat> um, again, if you go and read the book of Chronicles account, you, you get a little bit more detail. We know that Jehoram had six other brothers. This, But when he became king, he had them killed. In addition to some of the other leaders, he was very wicked. Um, he, he looked more like the king of Israel than the king of Judah. But as I said, he, he had married the daughter of Ahab. And uh, that's what led to his wickedness or had a part in his wickedness. Elijah had left him a letter, turns out, <clears throat> foretelling God's judgment on him that he would die a slow, painful death by disease. If you go back to read First Kings, you, you come across this where when Jehoram evidently was young, he had written this letter saying that because of your what's happening, the way your life is going to lead, you're going to die this horrible death at God's judgment. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. Um, and then the Lord sends enemies to start carrying off the wealth of his wealth and the family's wealth. Uh, so that First Chronicles tells us that when he dies, remember this is the king of Judah, when he dies, nobody regrets it. And what a horrible thing to, to die, and nobody cares. Everybody's kind of glad that you're gone. And it's uh, certainly uh, something we don't want. You don't want that to be true of us, right? So it's quite a legacy. All right, so <clears throat> that brings us to chapter 9, and this rather interesting account of uh, Jehu. And uh, we pointed this out last week, but this kind of sets up our whole account. Back in First Kings 19, um, the Lord says to Elijah, Go return by the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. We saw that last week. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall anoint to be king over Israel, which we read today. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and... Basically, this verse says they will be used to judge the wickedness in both in Israel and Judah, uh, especially, of course, Israel. And, and it, but it ends a little interestingly. The one who escapes from the sort of Ju, uh, Jehu shall Elisha be put to de- shall, shall Elisha put to death. And that's a little interesting because there's no account where Elisha put anybody to death by a sword. And so that's what some people are wondering. We know that um, what well, doesn't say he's, he'll use a sword, but there's no account that he put anybody to death as such. But we do know, of course, that he did put to death, many, you know, was it 42 children of idolaters early on in his ministry? But I think there is uh, something that would um, maybe show that how this was fulfilled. In Hosea 6.5, the Lord says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So, as the prophets are said to speak the word of the Lord and the judgment of sinners, the Lord says that is them, I'm hewing them down by the prophets, by the prophets' words. He's The Lord obviously is doing it, but he he kind of says the prophets knew it. So perhaps that's really what's going on here, that Elisha, as he goes and he pronounces judgment on these people, Elisha, that uh, he is putting to death the, all the, the rest of the 
people that aren't being killed specifically by Jehu and Haziel and so forth. So I think that makes certainly makes a certain amount of sense. <clears throat> um, anyway, Jehu will remind us that many times the Lord chastens his people by those who are not all that much better than the ones he's judging. Of course, Israel had to learn that lesson as they were judged. They were uh, persecuted by the uh, Chaldeans and, and the Assyrians and so forth. Uh, and that's, that was Habakkuk's whole, the reason of his whole book was, Lord, how can you send these evil people to judge us? They're worse than we are. Well, in a sense, they're not, though. Uh, although the Lord doesn't really go there as such because uh, he's, you know, basically Habakkuk has got to step back and say, this is what we deserve and it doesn't matter who the Lord sins. But in a sense, really, they're not worse in that they knew better. They had the oracles given to them. They had the law, the covenants, and they had rejected that, whereas the Assyrians were just doing what lost people do. Anyway, so that's, uh, it's a little bit like Jehu. Jehu is an interesting character because he, there's later on, if we'll see this next, next week, he, uh, he brings up a, a man who was known for his godliness into his chariot and he says, watch my zeal for Yahweh. And he, as he goes out and he just starts killing people, wicked people, but he, one of his problems is he is, uh, it's overkill. He, he kills more people than he needs to. And uh, and again, he's saying, watch my zeal for the Lord. He seems to need an audience. And and once he becomes king, you realize that he's he, he gives lip service to Yahweh, but he kind of does it his way, and we'll get into that next week. So he's an interesting character in that he goes about doing a lot of things in the name of the Lord, but his heart isn't really in, uh, isn't really submissive to the Lord. And, and so he's kind of an example of a hypocrite. <clears throat> Another thing to notice is that it is God's word and will that is the catalyst of history. As we watch all these things take place, it's easy to see the willful disobedience and sin of his characters and that that motivates them to do what they do. But as we said a minute ago, it's clear that the Lord is in this carrying out his ultimate plan. And it's not that he says, okay, I want you to sin so you're going to have to do this. He merely lets, he doesn't, he, he doesn't withhold them. He doesn't restrain them from their sin. He merely lets them sin so that they do these things because that's his plan. Even while he's calling out to the prophets, don't do it. But the Lord, but unless the Lord stops us from sinning, this is how we are. This is total, what total depravity means. We will be as evil as we are, can be unless the Lord would do different ways restrain us and it's extremely important for us to understand that about ourselves and about sin because if we don't we will look at we will think that innocent people are dying that the Lord is going too far you know and all that we we will start to judge the Lord because we don't see the seriousness of sin so anyway, the Lord is the one who is doing all these things. This is, this is him, his will being done. <clears throat> and so nothing happens outside of his eternal decrees, and every detail is fully accomplished to his satisfaction. Again, some verses in uh, Isaiah 42, 
uh, those chapters 40 through 48. Behold the former things that have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I put those verses out, I don't think for time's sake we will uh, read them, you can write them down if you want to, that, that say similar things. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. And what he means by that is there's no gods besides him, right? And there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I think the KJV probably there has evil. And again, some people get all excited over that, but it, it means calamity. He does it all. He sends a tornado because it's his will that things will be destroyed, that people might die in that particular situation, but he's the one who sends it. I am the Lord who does all these things. I am that I am. He's God. And this is who God is. And this is what it is to live in a fallen world. <clears throat> Uh, Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of all, for I am God and there is none other, no other, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And again, I know this is a little bit redundant. We've looked at these verses before. You know, you probably, you probably could quote this more or less. It, and that's all well and good, but it's just so important to understand that, that God is behind doing everything. Everything is, he's behind it. It's, it's being accomplished because he wants it to be accomplished. And that's where great comfort comes. It's not our job to sit there and say, well, Lord, I just don't, I don't see what, you know, why, how you, why you did that. It doesn't seem good to me. That, that's sin to even talk like that. What we need to be saying is, thank you, Lord, that you are in control, that you have saved me and given me a blessed hope. And that I know that you're in control of all these things. So let's also point out the difference in what God's people do with God's revelation and what rebels do. Jehu is uh, told that he will be king. He's anointed king, right? Remember what David did when he was anointed king. Nothing. He, he, he waited for the Lord to install him. He didn't take that as an opportunity to go and to kill Saul. Remember, and that was a huge thing in all that back then. Uh, Jehu doesn't. He does the exact opposite. Now he seems to it at first to just let it go, but it doesn't take but a few minutes for his friends to prod him and say, okay, uh, let's go and do this thing. And he's, uh, Showing himself, he's going out killing everybody. I mean, he, he, again, he kills people that have really innocent people in some senses. Uh, and, and we'll see how the Lord looks at all that next week. So just the opposite. Uh, once he finds out what God's will is, he takes it in his hand to accomplish it. And that's something that Christians have to be very careful about. What some have done in the name of Christianity, because we're told that uh, Christ is building a kingdom, and I think correctly we know that we are in the kingdom, the kingdom has begun, and in Christ's name, Christians have taken up the sword to try to help things along. 
And the problem is we've only been told to go out and preach the gospel because the kingdom is only built up through gospel preaching anyway, through, through conversion, right? And yet some think that, well, we need to kind of uh, enforce God's laws ourselves. And uh, that has led to all sorts of awful things that have happened down throughout history. So uh, it's one thing to know God's will, but, it's another, but we need to know what God's will is for me personally and not take matters into our hands when and end up disobeying God even worse than we than before. So, <clears throat> God's kingdom, we are told, is righteousness, joy, and peace. It is not man exerting himself in order to help God. It is not us forcing our belief or our standards on other people. Now, there's right ways to do that through government, but not enforcing uh, you know, our own personal beliefs on people. So, just some, some things that we need to be aware of, especially in our day in which there's so much of a call for Christians to kind of bring in the kingdom, that we've got to be very careful about, about those kind of things. Next we see God's, uh, part of God's will for this world is for the also-rans to pile up in the landfill of church history, as somebody said, right? That's kind of what we're seeing here, page after page, is people rising up, Doing their own will and God judging them and they become also rans. They just, they die and they're either buried or in some cases the, the God doesn't even allow them to be buried and, and the dogs and the birds come and eat their flesh. <clears throat> History is among other things just a long tedious list of nation after nation and per- person after person who has rejected God and done their own will, and end up in under God's judgment. It's one long, patient example of what living in rebellion to the Lord brings. The Lord allows people to do their own thing, but he does it as an object lesson very often. They refuse to learn from the past. They do the same things that others have done and, and destroy themselves in the same way. Now, we've seen some rather spectacular examples of of humanity in the course of several thousand years, right? Uh, Mankind created after the image of God. Some who have great intelligence and great abilities have done some amazing things. I think history, human history, is extremely interesting on one level to read about what man has accomplished. Think about the space program and some of the the marvelous uh, structures that have been built, scientific breakthroughs. But the world is ever spiraling downward as as God moves everything to his uh, glorious climax. And so while human history is interested on one level, it is extremely sad to watch people just do the same old thing in rejecting the Lord, and ending it up in the same way. And so it's necessary to see that the sovereign Lord is the only real mover and shaker. Uh, Even with these great kingdoms of power do some amazing things, at the end of the day, what we need to see is that the Lord is behind all that, not their puny power that we sometimes get so excited over. It's interesting that the Bible does not focus on human history. You ever thought about that? It contains 
aspects of human history. We read about some of the ancient civilizations and so forth. But only, not in any detail, only as it really affects the biblical narrative, as it's necessary to kind of add some, you know, what's going on, some context to, to the, the biblical redemptive plan. Because it's all about what God's doing. It, it, you know, you've perhaps heard this before. History is his story. How many, how many have never heard that before? Jeff's heard it, yeah. So, yeah, I think everybody's heard that, right? And it's, it's certainly true. It's trite, quaint, but it's true. It is God doing everything to, to move it in the direction he wants to do, certainly uh, in, in the redemptive plan and so forth. <clears throat> so that's how we have to view history. We ha- and that's how we have to view <clears throat> when those who seem to get away with so much and those who mistreat the church or mistreat the weak, that the Lord sees it. <clears throat> There's an interesting verse that we maybe have referred to before, Matthew 18. <clears throat> to that say to you, unless you turn and become like children. Now, the highlighted part is to remind you that some have taken this to say that this is biblical evidence that children are saved. Uh, and young children. Uh, but this is not saying that children are are saved necessarily, many differently than adults. And notice the uh, what I've highlighted here. He is making a comparison to what those in the kingdom of God look like. So you become like children. You don't have to become a child. you got to be like a child. And if you don't, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child, that is, a child who has humbled himself, in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. So these, this is a, it could be an adult who has humbled themselves and become like a child. And so now the Lord says, I'm watching to see how you treat such a one. And if you treat such a one uh, in my name, you're receiving me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, so he's not talking about a, a, a literal child, although to some degree I think it, it would apply to how awful it would be for, to try to get a little child, a young person to sin. But I think he's talking about believers in particular. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Which, again, like we said a couple of weeks ago, the worst of things is not human misery and human death, because the Lord says that in some cases it's very good that someone die, if if they're notorious sinners. The worst thing, of course, is to cause someone to sin, to dishonor the Lord. Dishonoring the Lord is the worst possible thing that can happen in this world. And, And again, if you don't keep that mindset and realize that, you will have a very difficult time understanding why God does many of the things he does. Because you're looking at people as innocent and good and and nice, and and you're forgetting what sin is, and forgetting the holiness of God. So anyway, what would be your reaction if you saw someone mistreating your your child? Well, it would probably not be good. Be some amount of rage, perhaps. And the Lord is saying here that I am watching how you treat my people. 
And judgment is coming if you would cause them to sin, if you would mistreat them in some way. I, I think there's a, I, that's the point there. And so um, <clears throat> this is what we're seeing take place in Second uh, Kings. So uh, here comes Jehu. He's driving furiously and the, watch, the, the watchman says, boy, that's got to be Jehu because no one drives like that, right? So he's got this reputation. And, uh, and they're now going to see how God is firmly in control and that Ahab, who has mistreated one of his little ones, that is Naboth, and the Lord says that uh, you're going to pay for that on the very spot of this ground that you just had to have, so you committed murder, you're going to die and, and pay for that on that very ground. And so, <clears throat> they, they he sends out these two uh, messengers who, you know, fall in line, and, and so he eventually goes out, and Ahaziah goes with him, and they realize that Jehu's come, uh, and it's not good, and they try to flee, and Jehu kills them, and it's interesting that right where he kills Joram is the spot where Ahab's line comes to an end, right, and where Ahab died, and where he's going to, well, not where Ahab died, but where judgment was pronounced on Ahab, that this was going to take place on the very spot in Naboth's vineyard, and perhaps that's the most amazing thing in this whole account, to, to show you that, that the Lord is doing this, because it takes place, you know, the chariot comes to a rest, you might say, as he dies in Naboth's vineyard. And uh, so it, it turns out that Jehu and uh, his friend there were there when that took place. So it's just a, an amazing account. It's Again, it's a, and it's a great sin to say that, what a coincidence. It's just weird, right? All the things, ways that we sometimes describe from a human standpoint. No, none of this is a coincidence. It was the Lord's will that he would die, that, that those two messengers would fall in line, and that he, uh, Ahaziah would go out and meet him all, or, and, and Joram, so that it would all end up at that spot, right? Just an amazing display of the power of God, right? And so these, both these kings have been set up for judgment. They were just doing their own thing. He was visiting a friend. And uh, it turns out that that's where um, they were going to uh, be judged at. Um, we read in Second Chronicles 22.7, But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to visit Joram. So you see, he's letting him do what he wants to do, but it's all to do God's will. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram. It's like Joram and Jehoram, sometimes used interchangeably. To meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. And it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. So they had wounded Ahaziah. <clears throat> he ends up uh, going to some town. And and so, uh, and then here you see Jehu, when he finds them, he doesn't just finish off Ahaziah. He kills everybody around, right? Um, 
and then brought him to Jacob, brought him to death, and buried him. For they said he is the son of Jehoshaphat. So he, he treats him with a little bit more honor because he was the son of Jehoshaphat. He sought the Lord with all his heart. So that there was no one of the house of Ahaziah to return to retain the power of the kingdom, which kind of sets up next week, because we're going to find that Ahaziah's mother, when he realizes her son is dead, she decides to, and there's really no all that are left for children, she decides to take matters to her own hand, and she tries to kill all of his kids so that she alone is left, and she becomes the queen for a few years in Judah. So that kind of sets up next week's lesson there. <clears throat> And then we finish off here in verse 30 with Jezebel's end, which again, all this is foretold that, that, that her, she wouldn't be buried and no one would be able to say there's Jezebel, there's Jezebel, because basically her whole body was going to be eaten up by the animals except for uh, her skull, hands, and feet. So that was certainly a ghastly sight. I think it's interesting, and I'll just point this out if you didn't notice it when you was reading it. I think it's interesting that as Jezebel gets ready to meet her end, remember she is a extremely wicked, idolatrous woman. What does she do? She paints her eyes. So I'm just going to throw that out there that, you know, you, 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 at least if you're growing up in my generation, it was not unusual sometimes when you saw a woman of the night or somebody who just had way too much makeup on uh, to be referred to as a Jezebel because, you know, what's the point? Why are you paying yourself up? So I would just say be careful that you don't end up, you know, emulating Jezebel. It's I think it's interesting that that was pointed out to us for whatever reason. I'll let you decide that. For yourself, but um, you know that's how I look at it. Be careful that you're you're known for your godliness, and you don't try to attract to make yourself to be known for your looks. And it's it's an important thing. I think First Peter talks about that. All right. So she's defiant to the end. She she calls him uh, Zimri. You know, because she knows what's coming, and. Uh, she dies just like Elijah said she would die. So again, you see how all these things are taking place, just in fulfillment of that First Kings 19. So God's people can rejoice and breathe a little easier for a while anyway. One of their greatest enemies has been judged. God has kept his word. <clears throat> He's protected his people. But what a warning that God won't even let her be buried, lest anybody even remember her at by, as they pass by her grave, right? She, she, she wants, he wants her to be completely forgotten. And I think that's a lot about what this account is all about. Alright, we'll stop there today. Any questions? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day and for, uh, the Word of God. Pray, Lord, that you might enlighten our minds to understand it and to, uh, love it, to obey it, and find it to be, uh, what we need. And so we pray that you would give us receptive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.